Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A few guys approached us and basically just started getting punched in the head, kicked in the head. I was in a fetal position on the ground while, while he was kicking my head in. And as that happened... This, the knife went into my, the side of my body, into my kidney, and yeah, rushed off the hospital. And Hi there, everyone. I'm your host, Bram Connolly, and this is my podcast. Each week, I interview a guest where we tackle a theory, unpack a skill, or answer questions on one of the themes of leadership, resilience, or human optimization. I truly believe that positivity is contagious, and positive leaders are the most effective. I also believe that the secret of life is probably as simple as constant self-development. This is often found through adversity and being tested. And finally, I know there's smart ways for us to be better at being human. And so I want to seek the scientifically proven ways by speaking with athletes, academics, and people who strive for greatness in their chosen fields. So this then is the Warrior You podcast, a podcast devoted to the warrior within and the physical warrior you were born to be. Join me on this path and together we'll learn more about leadership, resiliency, and human optimization. I promise. Before we get into it, I have some housekeeping. Firstly, Aussie Strength. I was going to read a scripted advert for my good mates at Aussie Strength this week, talking about all the cool stuff they have developed and the gym fit-outs they are doing across the country. And then, fortuitously, Andy Taylor, the Managing Director of Aussie Strength, left me a private voice message. So, let's just have a listen to that, shall we? You have no new messages. You have two saved messages. Message received August. First at 2.01 p.m. Hey, Brand. How you going? Uh, man, I just want to tell you about this new product that we're launching. I'm um, pretty excited about it. Um, we've uh, just in secret for sort of, well, there's a few little feelers out there, but mostly in secret. We've been trialing two new products with the Defence Force uh, for the last six months, uh, sorry, seven months. Uh, it's called the Valkyrie Sports Locker and the DSPX Go. The Valkyrie Sports Locker is a 10, 20, 40 foot shipping container conversions we're doing with gyms and uh, rebuilding the entire steel framework and, and allowing full customizations and then storage capabilities inside. Obviously, a few companies have done this before, but we've got some completely new takes on it. As you know, I like to sort of push the limits on, on what we do with our products. Um, the VSPX Go as well, additionally, is a trunk storage unit. Um, we've hit the market with our extremely uh, efficient uh, Manufacturing techniques, um, we've got this cost price down to 2500 bucks, uh, around thereabouts we're hoping to release to market. Um, yeah, I've just been getting calls after about seven months of trials. Uh, we've got three units in the system uh, moving down from Townsville, Brisbane, Sydney, and now it's going to go over to another area in defence, um, hopefully for national rollout. And, yeah, I've just been getting calls from Lieutenant Colonels and stuff today to tell me how much they love the unit and um, basically the quality and strength is unmatched to anything they've ever seen. So I want to sort of talk to you about how we get this out there to the public and then obviously anyone else who's interested, like fire, the police, anyone who's got an empty space and could use a gym can put one of these things in and just bang, drops on the ground, you set it up, 
you pack it back down again, you deploy, you're off again. I mean, it could work for literally, it could change so many different people's uh, capabilities across so many different modalities. Um, yeah, give me a call back, bro. Bye. To call back, press two. Go and check out Aussie Strength for some great deals and let them know I sent you. www.aussiestrength.com.au And my other key sponsor is Ironside Coffee. I thought I'd let you all know that Ironside Coffee will be supporting not only the Jocko Willick Echelon Front Muster in Sydney on the 4th and 5th of December this year, but also the live Warrior U podcast, which is recording the day after in Sydney on the 6th of December. That's right, you can have a brew of Ironside Coffee while listening to myself and a panel of guests talk about leadership, resilience and human optimization. More day details for that will be more details for that will be coming up shortly with a landing page so you can secure yourself tickets and come along and have a great night. Righto. This week my guest is Panos Anagnostu, founder and head trainer of Nooch's Hooches. He's qualified as a National Dog Trainers Federation Cert 3, Statement of Attainment and Dog Training Cert 4, Dangerous Dog Handling Course and Animal Studies Cert 2. But more importantly, Panos is passionate about how dogs can teach us more about ourselves. Panos received his first dog, Rocky, a Kelpie, after a critical incident that left Panos with a degree of trauma. Rocky taught Panos about the human condition and how dogs might just be the answer to finding a better version of ourselves. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, thanks for coming on the Warrior You podcast, Panos. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What have you been up to today? Well, I've got a five-week-old baby, actually, be five weeks tomorrow. So um, we had a few appointments today and a few meetings with um, with other parents, so it was really cool. Yeah, no worries. How's that all going? Yeah, pretty good. Are you just, are you just applying dog training tactics to your first-born child? We'll be working on it for sure. <laughs> are you- we're actually speaking with some of the nurses there. There is a lot of correlating concepts with basically raising a puppy and raising a child. Obviously, application's different. However, the fundamentals are pretty much the same. So I'm really looking forward to watching his development and obviously hoping that he raises up to be happy, healthy, and strong. Yeah. Sort of like Pavlov's dogs would be like Panos's kids. <laughs> You're onto it, man, 100%. Um, I've got a St. Bern Doodle. Oh, awesome. I'll try and find her. Hand. Oh, hey. Boy or girl? She's a girl. How, how old is she? She's not speaking today. I don't know why. Um, she's about... Oh, she must be 16 months. Maybe oh, she's cute. Maybe a bit more. She's awesome. Yeah. So she was expensive. St. Saint, Saint Bernadoodle. Wow. But I don't think there's too much St. Bernard in her. Well, it's interesting. You can definitely see her large kind of size that I'm looking from here now. Like she's a bit more fuller than most oodle breeds. Mm, mm, yeah. She eats a lot. Um, so, Panos, tell me your, your story, mate. I understand that it's a pretty traumatic start to all this. What happened? How did you get jumped and stabbed in the kidney, of all things? Look, man, I was basically somewhere in my area and a few guys approached us and basically just started getting punched in the head, kicked in the head. I was in a fetal position on the ground while, while he was kicking my head in and as that happened, this, the knife went into my, the side of my body, into my kidney and... Yeah, rushed off the hospital and... Who does that? Luckily, no... Oh, man, you know, it's... <laughs> what can you do, man? The human condition can be pretty ugly sometimes, I guess. Yeah, whereabouts was this? So this is in my area here in, in Ramsgate, yeah. where I live. Yeah, so in Sydney, Sydney South. Did um did they ever catch the person? Nah, nah. Oh, that's terrible. 
Yeah, it's crazy stuff, you know, and obviously it was, it was a rough start. I was just actually halfway through my HSE exams at the time. So, yeah. you know, not that I was, obviously that was a lot more stressful, but having to deal with the end of school, going into a new transition and then that happened, I guess it was pretty rough for me, but, um, but I guess it was also a really good thing that happened to me in hindsight as well, you know, projecting me onto a, onto a journey of understanding myself and, yeah, you know, it was just when finishing school. So as I said, it's a transition and I didn't start off straight away wanting to work with dogs. Obviously I, um, when I finished school, I worked full time, basically seven days, saved off enough money and my parents helped me out. I went overseas to Europe for three months. Yeah. When I got back, my parents bought me a Kelpie. So the Kelpie was there waiting for me. He was an awesome dog. His name was Rocky. Mm. And um, it was cool, man. First time I ever owned a dog. And after a few months of having him, I started to started to notice not just changing myself, but just this new appreciation of a side of me that I didn't didn't know I had. It was really cool to, um, you know, Kelpies are really smart, very intelligent dogs, so naturally easier to train. But I had no understanding of anything about dogs. I was complete amateur. But he was a year and a half old and he got leukemia and we had to put him down, which was really unfortunate. It kind of, that hurt me more than, than being attacked, to be honest. Yeah, you know, the, I love that the, dog so much. But the, to, to just go back a sec, like you said, you were just going through your H- HSC and obviously there was a, there's a degree of post-traumatic stress that comes from that attack that happened. And I can, I can hear it when I talk to you. I know it's there. Um, and... It, it's interesting because the reason I reached out to you is knowing that story is that, you know, I've got friends that have PTSD um, or PDS as they like to call it now, and it, it does seem that dogs are are, are a great um, way, a great intervention of that post-traumatic stress because it's a grounding force. I mean, you went the whole hog and became, a dog, you know, an amazing dog <laughs> trainer out of it, but the the fact of the matter is that there's a relationship between humans and and dogs that goes back well i don't know however long thousands of years millennia thousands, thousands yeah so yeah. long it's, um, it's kind of all up in the air because obviously the history of how we came about was is always different but i reckon dogs have been with us for since we started becoming tribal right you know like i think hundreds of thousands of years yeah yeah and there's a relationship between the two that is very very close to to almost a genetic um, that they do things to us from a genetic standpoint, like they make us feel different. They maybe genome sequencing changes. I'm not sure. We can go into the whole human optimization of it later. People are a lot smarter than you and I studying this shit, but um, <laughs> For sure. but they definitely have an emotional connection. And so that that connection with with Rocky was was a almost a spiritual emotional connection for you, wasn't it? Yeah, hundred mm. percent. It's. You know, like, and as you said, I think we're closer to dogs than we are with chimps, and chimps are more related to us genetically. But we created dogs from the wild counterpart, you know, the wolf-like animal that they were, and we created them into dogs to do specific tasks for us. And we've had a very long journey with them, and our history is so deep that now that we have dogs in our households, like, why do we still have them if they have no particular job to do for us? Because they do heal us, man. They do help us in so many ways, and. Mm. There's, so, there's a massive list that I could come up with in the way that how dogs affect us. And I think we all know that because we still got them in every second household's got a dog now. So mm. there is um, so many healing properties to them because they're always in the moment. You know, they bring us joy. They, they remind us about a different part of ourselves away from the human conditioning that we have generally in our culture and our society. It brings us 
to a more raw, maybe a more primal, instinctive level. So when when Rocky died, that that was like really profound, wasn't it? Profound moment. You know, like knowing that he was going to die because he was diagnosed and about three weeks later we put him down. Mm. It was really, maybe it brought up a lot of older emotion as well, that things that I had experienced. But, you know, the, the connection that I had with him was something that I probably didn't even expect to happen. Like, for example, when he was sick and I was at work, my mates would come to my house, pick Rocky up and take him out to Coogee or to go to the beach and do different things. Like, he affected everyone that was around him. It was a really like – he wasn't just a cool dog, but he was one of those special dogs that really did connect. And I feel that Kelpies in particular, like a lot of working dogs, they have been working with humans in a particular way for so long that we do have a really – intense connection they want to follow they want to guide rather than having to like even though they chase and herd sheep they herd sheep because we want them to and they guiding from us rather than a, a pointer or another hunting animal that is more driven to just chase the prey on its own yeah the working dog wants to work with us so mm. they um it's almost like having a human around it's a mm. it, it does have that unconditional sense of you know you're my brother or you're my son sort of connection i saw that in in Timor, my first deployment to Timor, we had a tra- um, a tracking dog attached to us to our reconnaissance patrol, and that that dog you'd be up in the in the mountains, and it's not just because it's cold up there that you want to you know get up next to the dog. It's because people, you know, when you live in close proximity to other people for you know seven, eight, you know, ten, twelve days, um, you'd go and sit down with the dog for 20, 30 minutes, and it's sort of you're right, it's in the moment, and it's it's sort of a circuit breaker. Um, because you're not dealing with someone else's crap, you know. You're sitting there patting a dog, and you know. And as a patrol commander, I'd quite often get the, the dog over in my pit, and we'd sit there and I'd just and think about what I'm going to do next and what, where we're going to go, what we're going to do, and just be sitting there patting this German Shepherd. Um, and I know the guys saw that in Afghanistan as well. They became really attached to those, you know, those military working dogs. Some some of them are, are the sort of dogs that you can't get attached to, um, you know, the attack dogs. But the the ones that are that are there for the scent tracking. They're, they're dogs that you can sort of spend a bit of time with and sort of um, connect with. And you know, I see it in my own dog as well. I call her a I call her a therapy dog. She's not, but she's you know <laughs> stops me from stops me from uh, going nuts. I think. <laughs> no, definitely. Look like when I'm having a tough day, the best the best part of my day. Well, maybe not the best part of the day because there's many good things in my life now. You've got a wife and, and a new son, but a really important part time of my day is getting my dogs and going for that walk. You know, that hour walk is obviously it's fun. It's exciting. Gets me away from the daily happenings, you know, running a business can get a little bit demanding as well. So going for that walk, it, first of all, having dogs gives us an opportunity to visit nature every single day. You find your park, you know, you find your nature strip and you walk through there and, you know, just kind of cleanse your mind, give some time to recalibrate and obviously training and playing with your dogs is a fun time, you know, so yeah. But, um, and you ended up you ended up um, starting to work in uh, like a, a place that had like a refuge for dogs, didn't you initially? Yeah. So basically, after Rocky passed away, I got another dog about a month later, and I continued to have cool experiences with with my dog. His name was Ace, and I was starting building at the time. I worked at Ramick Racecourse, and I felt that I wanted to work with animals. I really had this this um, this calling for it. So. I ended up quitting my job, quitting TAFE and volunteered at the shelter local to me, Sydney Dogs and Cats Home. And I started studying animal studies at TAFE to think, we'll just see where this takes me. And being there, walking the dogs, helping clean up the kennels, I was offered a job. So I started working there. From one day became three days, became full time. 
and yeah, working with those dogs was, was really cool. It was a different experience. Obviously walking my dogs, I had a lot more control over them. We're working with dogs that come from unfortunate circumstances. They haven't had any boundaries, rules, any training. So um, I naturally had a tendency to connect and, and to guide them. And people thought that was really cool. I seen, I was able actually in a position where I could compare myself to other people. And I thought, Hey, this is pretty cool. This is a, it's a good gig that I've got going here in terms of how I'm feeling my day. How about we take this further? And I lived at home. It was an opportunity to, to sacrifice some time and money because working in the shelter, you, yeah, it's not a very high paying job. Yeah. Yeah. There's a guy in America who, um, uh, the good dog training, you might've seen him on Instagram. I think it's called the good dog training guy or something. I think like. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, and he has a similar sort of story. I think his is more about alcohol and, and the like and, and being on benders and then um, – and he's a, he's a qualified musician and, and then – and he started making money by walking people's dogs and then he started training them because they, they weren't – you know, because some of these dogs were untrainable and then he ended up – like he was walking like 10 dogs at a time and people were like, how are you doing that, you know? And he came up with this whole idea of how to train dogs that are, that are hard to train. Um, is a huge business out of it. Like he's a millionaire now, but th- there is some basics to training a dog, isn't there? That you can teach people. Like there's a there's a whole um, there's a structure around what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Great question. So the little the some of the theory that I tell some of my clients when I first see them is all dogs are designed to do a job where they're pulling sleds, herding sheep, retrieving game, etc. Now we have dogs our companions that miss out on that job. And if we don't give them a job, they lack purpose and they find their own ways to fulfill themselves. And that can come up with the many undesirable behaviors that we don't like, whether it's digging holes, destructive behavior, chasing the cat, being aggressive to other dogs and people, etc. So what we need to do is give our dogs a job. So obedience training, sit down, stay, come when called are some of the basics that all dogs should know. Um, and structured walking becomes an important job as well because it's something that has to happen every day. So we need to make that as fulfilling for the dog as possible. Mm. So uh, stimulating his mind and his body, we're giving him opportunity to follow us. So we become a good leader. And some of the fundamentals of the training is that once we give this dog a job and the job can be a destructive walk and practicing your commands, it gives your dog an opportunity to fulfill some of those innate and instinctive drives that they have. And we want to try to harness that and then fulfill their needs. So, a lot of the destructive behaviors and undesirable behaviors don't become so, so many times reinforced or just gone off. So it becomes self-reinforcing and we give the dog that opportunity to do things that we want them to do while providing structure and providing rules and boundaries when you're out doing these activities. So that way there, the dog has a lot more stronger connection with us. So there's many different benefits of why we should be doing this stuff with our dogs not just for the dog's sake, but for ours and also all the things that come from it. Do you use rewards-based training? Yeah, most of our training that we do is, is positive reinforcement. So teaching dogs what to do rather than focusing so much on what the dogs, what we don't want the dogs to do. If we focus too many on the problems and we're using too much correction and punishment, which isn't very motivating to the dog, sometimes it's necessary for sure. But working on positive reinforcement in regards to rewarding behavior and guiding them towards the behaviors that we like. That's where we're going to start seeing more enthusiasm from the dog, more drive. And then the dog then tries to do it better if we're on a good schedule of reinforcement as well. And then there's times where you have to then wean off the food. So behaviors and commands 
become more reflexive and they happen and we start rewarding even less. You never should stop rewarding your dog, but you certainly should be at a point where your dog can follow commands and follow the walk, for example, yeah. without having to be continuously rewarded. Yeah. So we've taught our dog to, um, you know, to go to her bed whenever we say it and to come from the bed to us. And she'll do that as one task. But if we let her off a lead, you know, go down the park and let her off a lead, you can't get her to, to come back to you, you know, without her running off through the car park to chase the other parent that's walked somewhere else with the kids or something like that. You know, of course, for sure. Well, look, the difference between inside your house and outside your house is that there's a lot more yeah. stimulus, more environmental stimulus happening, which means that your dog's motivated and also has probably learnt to run up to those people and there's probably a reward at the end of that. If she's going to get attention from those other people, then she goes, well, I'm still going to go there. So to end, if there's a question, to answer it would be that, First of all, you have your dog on a 10-meter lead so you can control the dog. And that way there, then, of course, you start working on working on that recall. Don't start from inside the house and then next thing you're in the park trying to get her to come. You should probably gradually introduce some distraction. So having her on that longer lead, going out into the front yard, practicing your commands. And then slowly, slowly start adding the distractions by doing it on the footpath and then moving closer towards the park, for example, and then expecting her or training her around different environmental stimulus like other dogs and other people etc and that's how you're going to start gaining more success from the behavior rather than expecting her to think that you're as exciting as the other people for example and depends on how you've rewarded it um, in the past as well yeah right so as soon as you're saying that i'm like oh no we used to go one (laughs) we used to go down one end of the park each and make her come to you know yell out When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN her to come to one and then go back to the other and then come to one so that's what she's probably doing now yeah so there's so much stuff isn't there to unpack like even just i've been trying for the last few months to teach her to you know give me her paw and i've I've read that you've got to ask a dog you know you ask a dog then you lift the paw up and then you say it again and then and then you put it down you just keep doing that and then reinforcing it but yeah it's not getting through to her There's many different ways as well of getting her to shake, for example. So there's different techniques in regards to trying to guide her with a bit of compulsion. So using your hand and picking it up and then shaping it by saying the word shake and then reward. Um, And then there's other ways of capturing it. So if you can capture the behavior through free shaping, so if the dog then offers it on her own, you can then reward that. And then that goes down the, the rabbit hole of how do we reinforce and you, you spoke before about Pavlovian conditioning. So using all these different concepts of capturing the behavior and telling her she's done the right thing and you use a marker like your word, yes, and then you reward it. So there's a couple of different ways of getting a dog to do something. It's just about, I guess it's how much you practice it as well and also really starting to assess her body language and understanding, does she understand this? Because sometimes we misunderstand our dog's body language and we assume that they understand what we want them to do, but it's only in a certain context, like when your hand is doing a certain motion or the way that you're positioning your body. And it could also be the way that you're asking the command. 
where as soon as you go outside and then your routine changes because you're holding the lead differently, you're maybe not as calm, then that's when our dog starts to read different behavior as well. I assume that different um, different breeds will have different body language as well that you sort of need to get your head around those those sort of breeds too. There's body language is quite consistent am- amongst all the dogs. However, there are some breeds that it's harder to read their body language. Like your poodles, hackles don't really go up. She, her hackles probably do go up, but you can't see it because of the nature of her fur. Or for example, if you have a spitz breed, like a husky, malamute, um, samoid, for example, their tails are generally always curled up. Their, their fur is always generally very fluffy. Their ears are generally pointy. So it's really hard to be able to assess different parts of her body, whether it's with the tail's going up, is it lowered, is she highly aroused? You know, it can be very hard to read from certain breeds, but that's why the, the advice is always look at the whole body of the dog rather than just the tail or just the head because then you're missing out on very important parts of understanding what she's doing. And it's just like the same with the human. Someone could be smiling and we generally associate smiling with happy but and then happy with being good. And if you look at his whole body and if he's holding a knife in his hand and he's smiling, then the, the, um, the information <laughs> becomes different about yeah. judging that person's body language. Yeah, fair call. Yeah, she was um, at a ball go underneath a, a, um, a cupboard and I didn't realise it and she was sitting there and she was like, like slowly growling to me. I was like, what's going on? What's going on there? Like trying to work it out. And it took ages for me to work. Maybe I'm the stupid one in the family. But anyway, um, they're so good. They're so good for kids too, right? Because our kids wouldn't go near dogs before we got Millie. Um, really wary of, of animals. And, you know, and the boys grew up in the UAE, so there wasn't many dogs there um, for the first you know, five years. And it wasn't until we, we got her that we realised how antisocial with animals our kids were and that they needed this, mm. they actually needed this you know they needed this puppy in their lives to be to get over that fear and to and now they're probably a little bit too confident around dogs they think they're all as nice as this yeah, one exactly yeah but they're really good for kids um, i think i definitely think it's really important for for children to ha- have some form of socialization around dogs whether it's their own dogs or or visitors friends dogs etc because First of all, I think if you're if you've got control over your dog anyway, teaching children how to some basic principles of leadership, teaching them how to be a leader over their animal, like you know, get them to work with the training routine or going for the walk and doing some of the deeds around the house, teaches them that responsibility and that confidence through leadership. And of course, if we maintain good leadership, then our children are watching that and that makes them to be more responsible humans as they get older. I guess they become a little bit more compassionate as well because the dog can't tell them how they feel. They have to be empathic enough to be watching the dog and going, I think Millie's feeling upset right now or she looks scared. It's good for them to understand these things. So from early on, they become good observers of body language and and how the environment affects us as well because you know Millie could be happy today and then could be a bit more scared if there was a oversized Labrador running at her, for example. So situations are important to watch as well and teach children those concepts. What are your sort of rules for, for training dogs, Panos? What do, you, what do you start with? If we were to start with a puppy, I think that's probably a good place to start. I think the best thing to do with puppies is, first of all, management of your house. So I see a lot of my clients, they leave the puppy inside the house, they go to work for eight hours, they come home and their house is destroyed, um, whether they're toileting on the couch or they're, destroying the carpet or mm. all the all the things that puppies can do. So understanding management is really important. I think 
having an allocated space for your dog, whether you crate train your dog, whether you have a section or an exercise pen management, not just for puppies, but even for older dogs, if people are rescuing dogs, you know, it, making sure the place is safe for the dog so they're not destroying something and they potentially injure themselves or cause death by escaping out of the yard or some dogs would chew a door so so intensely that they swallow the wood. You know, these things can happen. So safety for the dog, safety for ourselves and also setting your dog up for success so you can live and coexist with each other in harmony rather than having frustration. I think that's one rule. Number two rule is making sure that you're practicing obedience training as often as possible, preferably yeah. daily. So, um, and it doesn't have to be very long sessions, three to five minute sessions a day, try to do it three to five times a day. Um, and that way there, if you're doing heaps of short sessions, multiple times a day, you're engaging with your dog, you're teaching them how to follow practical rules. And so when you're out and about, you have a good recall, your dog can sit, stay or downstay in more busier environments. So that will help you as the dog gets older. And also, as I said, when you're going for the walk, have some, some boundaries, of course, walking is sick like a four month old puppy compared to a four year old dog would be different because puppies are more excitable, but start working on some general foundations, walk on the same side, have food with you, start rewarding the behaviors that you like. And, and really important as well is, is appropriate socialization, especially from young. So that way there we have balanced social dogs that are in, in when they encounter other dogs, other people, smaller animals, etc. And I guess that could also be great advice because if we're doing the right things from young, then at least when these dogs get older, they're not going to be doing as mm. catastrophic things as we see what we've been seeing on the news over the last, the last week as well. You know, there's been some tragedies. Yeah. So yeah. we can avoid these things by doing the right thing. But unfortunately people miss out on those critical periods of development as a dog's young up to 17 weeks old. They're not doing the right thing by them, not basically giving them any structures, any rules, any proper exercise, mental stimulation. And because of that, dogs are frustrated. They act out on their instincts and some dogs are really big, very powerful. They have a, the tools to kill. And unfortunately, sometimes these things happen. So, mm, yeah. yeah. And just, just walking a dog on the, on the lead, how do you, how do you train a dog to not pull like that? How do you go about doing that? If you want them to stay by your, by your side to, to heal, I guess. Yeah. So basically depending on how old the dog is, let's just assume the dog was a year old. I would use a martingale collar you know, you keep the collar up high up on the dog's neck and you show them how to walk on the lead within the backyard before you go out into the street. Make sure you have a few techniques like changing direction when the dog starts to pull in front of you, start using your high value food. So you're getting the dog's attention and rewarding every time they're next to you and showing them that you still have to follow a routine when you're out walking, not just happening inside the house. So mm. practicing your training when you're out and about, whether you're working your sit stays, your down stays, you're working on stopping at the curb every time. So having these good routines and this structural way of interacting with the walk, I think your dog will find more success with being closer to you and focused on you rather than pulling out in front and trying to chase everything that they can see. And what's really important as well, I told my clients is every single walk should incorporate some free time for your dog. So using a 10 meter lead, walk to the park and then give them time to run, pee, poo, play, sniff and do all that thing. So you can release all that pent up energy. And give them fun too. We don't want to be too, too regiment. We want to have a bit of flexibility yeah. and freedom for our dogs as well. My, my dog's superpower is to chase a ball. Yeah, so if she's so motivated super. with the ball, you, you need to use that ball as, as a reward. So one of my dogs, her, she's a Maltese Pomeranian. Her name's Nookie. And she yeah. really, really loves a ball, right? She's like yeah. nuts for it. So I first use food to teach certain behaviors. So the things that I generally work on with her, 
Um, I'm always working a downstay. I'm getting her to stay up to about 100, 200 meters while I walk away from her. Either I go back and reward her or her release her. And now that I've taught her with food what the behavior that I want, I can now use that ball as a reward. So I tell her to down, for example, I walk 100 meters away from her, I wait, I say the word bang, which indicates to her that I'm rewarding her with the ball. And then she breaks position, she goes and chases the ball. And that way there, I practice even my recall and other commands when we were out walking through the park. So now, because I was... I, wasn't, I didn't have her from a puppy. She was one of my client's dogs, so I, I acquired her when she's about a year and a half old. So there was a few things that I needed to work on. And now, like, for example, her recall is really good because what I did was intermittently while we're walking through the park while she was on a long lead, I would call her to come. She comes running up to me. She sits in front of me. And sometimes I would say the word bang and throw that ball. So now when I call her, she comes with so much intensity. Sometimes I reward it, sometimes I don't. And because I've made her a little bit of a gambler, she doesn't know if she's going to get that reward or not. So she's going to come with more reliability. So good for safety. And also I'm getting to fulfill her needs as well. So I, I often wish I could train people like, you know, to be like a dog. So that they wake up at five o'clock in the morning and they're like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to go train like every single day, you know, the consistency that they show of, of, you know, if I say the magic word now, it'll be, it'll be yelling and screaming and jumping around and carrying on. Cause you think we're going to go, but um, exactly. it's incredible. You see the energy that they, they wake up with to, to do that thing. You know, that's my thing. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up. I'm going to chase that ball. It's going to be amazing. Um, be good Definitely. Look, like and if every, if you, once you find what your dog's motivated by, and once you find what humans are motivated by, we can do so many cool things. However, the thing with when we get too much of what, like if we become too comfortable, then we don't really need to work so hard for those things that we like because they're coming with so much instant gratification. And because of that, we tend to see less motivation in people because things aren't scarce anymore. And I guess that's a big problem. And I think I try to apply the same principles within training within myself. Like I need to exercise mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually as often as possible. And that way there I'm fulfilling my needs instinctively rather than waiting for me to have a, a day that creates too much stress or when I'm feeling down and out, you want to try to have some routine and structure within your own life. So if you can motivate yourself and then, then hopefully then you can see the motivation others are giving. So it's not everyone's got to do the work. It's not the it's not the dog that loses motivation to be trained, is it? It's the person, it's the family usually that loses the motivation to train the dog. I, I think so. There's, look, there are some dogs that are couch potatoes. They are they're not as drivey and as excited as other dogs. But um, but there's many ways of motivating behaviour, and I think some people, most of us, are working a lot with positive reinforcement. So using reinforcement as motivation. But then there, are, there is also incorporating some form of punishment or correction to a behavior. So once you have a behavior that you like and that you that the dog understands, that's when you can then provide a consequence for the dog for not performing the behavior. And that way there we have more reliability and we make sure that the dog knows that they have to do it regardless. Obviously, we're not going to put our dogs in, in uncomfortable situations to do it. But for example, with my dog, if she was out in front, and that one time I called her to come, but she felt like sniffing the grass a little bit longer. I would put pressure then on the lead and that would encourage her to come back to me. And now I don't have to use that sort of pressure because she knows I'm consistent and I follow through. So I think there's, there's some truth to that as well for ourselves. Yeah. What are some common dog training sort of problems that you see? Um, pulling on the leads, probably the most common. Yeah. Um, barking is a very common one. Um, reactivity to other dogs. 
yeah. or potential aggression. Most most people think their dogs are aggressive, but they're just reactive. Right. And what I mean by that is that they uh, they see a dog, they're overexcited, they have a lot of pent up energy, and they don't know how to control their excitement with lack of impulse control, and then they just act out by barking and lunging and carrying on. They they wouldn't bite a dog. Maybe they could bite a dog out of being over aroused, but most of the time they get to the dog and then they become too boisterous. But um, but we do see a lot of aggressive dogs as well. So teaching people to manage a dog, get the dog into a good routine, and then eventually working with rehabilitating some of that aggression. And most aggression comes from fear. So I see a lot of fearful, anxious dogs. We need to build their confidence. Mm. Um, and I think that's those are some of like those are like the top three or four that I can think of. But you know, I've seen lots of weird and wonderful behaviours in the last eight years of of um, working with dogs. And is there lots of different reasons why dogs might be aggressive? I mean, I know I know off the top of my head, sort of like um, from fear from being, you know, hit or whatever in the past. But some of them are, are territorial as well, right? Well, look, like most dog, when it comes to fear, most most of the time it's like, of course, it can happen from having a bad experience, mm. being attacked by another dog, or of course, being abused by a person. Mm. A lot of it comes from lack of socialization from being, from the young ages. Um, that up to that first 17 weeks, that critical period of development, a lot of socialization has to happen then. Mm. It could be genetic. It could be that mum and dad were aggressive dogs and it's a genetic trait. It could also be that, you know, there are some dogs that are territorial and if you step onto the property, they, they will advance towards you and potentially bite you. Mm. Um, there are more rarer. There are truly dominant dogs. It's more, a lot more rare to see a, a, a truly dominant behavior that results in aggression but mm. it can happen as well. Mm. But um, but most of the time, it's it's fear related. It's when a dog is unsure, they either enter a fight, flight, or state state yeah. of mind. Yeah. And if the dog's on a lead and they have nowhere to run off to, mm. they um they will potentially bite you. And if they've been successful in the past, why not continue doing the behaviour? Yeah, right. It's fascinating, isn't it? There's so much psychology around around humans and the dogs, and then the human dog interaction as well. Yeah. It's, Look, a lot of trainers are really good at working with dogs, but they but the real skill, or well, half the skill, is is being able to translate the information to the people and understanding that everyone has a different way of learning and speaking and interacting with their dog and with life. So you need to have those skills to understand the people, so you can change the behaviour in um, from what's happening within the people. So then the dog then understands how to follow suit. Because I can work a dog and get him to do things that I want him to do. If I don't teach the people how to do the exact same thing or follow the same routines, then we're not going to really have much success. And you're based in Sydney? I am. Yeah, and how's business going? Business is good. We started Nutris Pooches in 2011. That's when I was working at the shelter there, and um, I was also working a few other different kennels at the time. I started full-time in about 2012, and since then we've been going pretty strong. Hey, um, basically working six days a week, most weeks, and I could – have a full day every single one of those days as well. So seeing about four to five clients a day. So is it your dream? Yeah, it's pretty. Is good. it your dream job working with dogs? It is. Look, I'm really, really happy to to be in the position that I am. I think it's really special, quite a blessing. Mm. It's um, I've got a few things in the pipeline that I want to continue working because my passion is of of course working with dogs and helping people, but really trying to to advance the way that we're doing business as well. So we're trying new ways because of course more more demands in my life now and we need mm. to um, become more successful on that side but I think the best way to get that success is to spread the message and teach people these different concepts and 
seeing how it's going to be practical in their life. So it's really important to work the practicality. So yeah, yeah. well, you've been yeah, you've been very active getting the word out there, which is you know sparked my interest, and I, I like to see. You know, you're an entrepreneur, but an entrepreneur of a different sort of, you know, sort of style than I, that I'd be, you know, used to, I guess. And and this is a, one of those businesses that really is word of mouth to start with. Um, until you start releasing your YouTube, you know, training videos, and then the book, and then and then you know, and then you have um, I don't know who who's some celebrities you work for. It must be some by now. You know what? We're working up to that. You're not allowed. To, you're not allowed to tell me. Um, yeah, and then it's and then and then there's going to be you know, CrossFit for dogs and then workout work out with people when dogs, isn't there? Something like that, surely. For sure. Look, well, there's a lot of dog sports out there that um, people can enroll up with, it, it, whether it's agility training, scent detection, whether it's um, working more the the protection style and the advanced obedience. So there's many things out there. And, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of trainers at the moment because the industry is getting strong and through podcasting and, and going to seminars and networking, we're starting to – all share our part of the training. So there's so much opportunity out there and we're learning so much every year. The more that we're getting together and sharing our, our knowledge and experience, the, our dogs are going to benefit and hopefully people follow suit because it's all about the dog owners that have to work with this stuff as much as the professionals like us dog trainers need to get together and continue building our understanding. We need to try to get that information to become mainstream. So Mm. Hopefully yeah. the governments don't ban all big, powerful breeds by the, in the next 50 years, which can be a possibility if we don't take proper responsibility over what we're doing. No, it's a fair call. And, um, yeah, like you said, there's lots of sports out there for people and their, and their dogs to get involved in. Um, I like the scenting stuff. I think that's pretty cool. But there's also there's also a requirement for people like yourself um, to, to train the dogs that they that then get used as therapy dogs for people with PTSD. And I couldn't think of anyone better to, to train dogs up for someone who's been through something traumatic than, than yourself because you understand the special bond between, you know, the person and the, and the dog and how that dog gives that person, you know, makes them feel safe or, or makes them feel grounded or gives them gives them a um, some sort of a circuit breaker for, you know, whether that's some sort of um, episodes you know, whether that's anxiety or stress-related episodes. Um, it's such an important role that the, that, the, that the dogs have, I think. Hey, you're so right about that, you know, and there is a lot more. Like in the last two years, I've probably seen about 20 dogs that are in some form of therapy program. So before they get qualified through a, um, an organisation, they need a certain level of training. So, And it's very much like if my dog was to get signed up for that, he would pass – all those tests because it's exactly what I expect dogs to do. Like walk a loose lead, not be reactive to other dogs, focused on you, know how to hold sit stays, down stays, good recall, um, appropriate socialization, like all these things that need to be as a good foundation. So then they can then enter this role. So then they can have public access. I think the rules are through government bodies are starting to change as well. So it is still a developing sort of industry and, at the moment, there's no hard set laws in New South Wales about dogs and public access, even though it's happening. I think in the next few years, I think the ball's going to continue rolling and dogs are going to have more of an opportunity to be helping people with post-traumatic stress, with medical conditions, um, disability issues as well. So, like, you know, some of my clients have, whether they're having a seizure and the dog then alerts to when um, they're going to have a seizure, but also they have special tasks to do, whether it's to open a door and grab things for them. And 
my job in, in particular at this, at this stage, when I'm getting subcontracted from other different um, organizations is mainly working the obedience side of things. And of course, then coaching the people to keep a good flow. And because if we're not fulfilling the dog's needs on that basic level, then they're not going to really yeah. be good candidates for the, for the job. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And man. I think the training is part of the therapy as well. You know, when the, when we're engaging with the dog and getting on that level, first thing we that we're seeing that having that deeper connection with the dog. So we have more understanding and there's more potential mm. um, for, for healing, I guess. But also a, one thing that has worked in my life is that I start to see, well, I'm fulfilling all these animals mentally and physically, and I'm making such a big deal about it. But when am I doing that for myself? And mm. I, first of all, I identified where I was doing it through martial arts or whether it was through business and through holding relationships and balancing my life and seeing how I had to fulfill myself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. The more you start to understand it, see where you're doing it, see where it's benefiting and doing more of that. Yeah. That's what's really important. That's where a lot of the healing is going to happen as well for, for us. So especially yeah. going through that, that hard time, I was never actually diagnosed with anything, but I knew that there was something wrong with me with the bad nightmares and the fear of the dark and, oh, of course. you know, not trusting people. Someone would look at me in the street. It would straight away. I would look away where through training. And of course, you know, I give a lot of credit to my sensei for, for teaching me not just the confidence within the physical side of it, but there was a lot of other teachings that he was helping as well. And that's what a good teacher does. Right. And like a simple technique and it's a counter conditioning technique is that when someone would look at me on the street, if I was walking down the street, just change the body language and smile back. And you know what? 99% of people smile back at you and you continue walking. Yeah. <laughs> and just doing that over a few months, I started to overcome that fear. So yeah. we would do the same thing with the dog. If the dog's scared of another dog and he's reactive, have some form of high value food, get that dog's attention back onto you. As soon as the dog looks at you, you mark it with the word yes and reward. And if you do this continuously, then the dog will start seeing dogs as an opportunity for food and we start to make a different yeah. conditioned response. And we do the same thing with ourselves as well. So, uh, yeah. My dog ran up to another dog the other day and that we were walking. It was dark. It was like five in the morning and um, ran up to this other dog walking the other, other way with its owner and they started sniffing each other. And the guy goes to me, um, oh, it'd be good if all humans could do that, wouldn't it? I went, yeah, but I wouldn't appreciate you sniffing my nuts, mate, to be fair. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, look, and even having dogs, it gives us an opportunity to speak to the people in the community, walking yeah. down the street and have that conversation. You know, there's so many, as I said before, that it's something that it, it activates something within us. It's, it's maybe like getting away from technology-based and in the yeah. judgy state of mind and it makes us a little bit more friendly to each other and I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah, no, it's cool. Hey, Panos, I want to thank you for coming on the Warrior You podcast, mate. And as, you, as you've quite rightly identified, you know, dogs teach us a lot of things about, you know, leadership, resilience and, and owning a dog and training a dog's you know, all about human optimization and being better. So I think it's ticked all the boxes, mate, for, for a really good conversation. That's awesome, man. Yeah, appreciate for you having me on. And it was a great, great, um, great opportunity to discuss these, these things and hopefully your listeners burn. And where can, where can people reach out to you and learn more about um, training their dogs and, and maybe if they're in Sydney, getting you to come and give them a hand? Yes, you can check out our website, nutrispooches.com.au. And we're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. So just type in Nutris Pooches. And, um, and you can stay tuned. Over the next month or two, we're going to be releasing our podcast, Life With Your Dog. So cool. keep, keep tuned for that. And, um, yeah, if you live in southern Sydney, I come to you. Um, other than that, 
people can come to my place and we can do training from here. So, yeah. yeah. Best job in the world. Thanks, mate. <laughs> it All is. Right. Hey, thanks very much, man. Appreciate it. Speak soon. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.